0: I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Today I'm with John Owen Jones, who is the former Labour MP for Cardiff Central and a former Welsh Office Minister um, in the period immediately before devolution. Uh, John, you're from Mardi originally, aren't you? Which was known as Red Mardy uh, in the... Little Rother- Moscow, not Red Mardi, Little Moscow. That's it, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And growing up in that village, what did you imbibe of its politics? Well, looking back, it was rather
1: a unique environment. I mean, the word other villages similar, I suppose, in, in South Wales, but um, not elsewhere. It Right at the end of a valley, the last pit to go back to work in 1926, the pit that led the uh, miners back in 1984. My neighbour, five doors down, was the lodge secretary, Arvon Evans. My grandfathers were both miners. My father, who went through life with uh, several chips on his shoulder, but he had uh, had some uh, justification for them, he was taken out of grammar school at 14 and went down the pit. He volunteered without telling his parents to go into the, the war uh, to get out of being in the, uh, in the pit. But he, after the war, he suffered with post-traumatic uh, stress disorder for the rest of his life. You know, that had uh, an influence on, on the whole family. But the community was, I mean, I, when I knew everybody almost in the street. I could walk into every house, the doors were left open and, and so on. My mother was the school teacher in the uh, junior school and a deacon in the chapel. It, 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 it's almost a caricature of uh, that sort of background. And you're a Welsh speaker. How did that come about? My next door neighbours were my grandmother and grandfather. My grandmother was blind. My, had well, become blind uh, in later life. I had a maiden aunt next door who had gone out to service when she was 13, was brought back to help look after my grandmother. The language of that household was Welsh, and I was brought up speaking Welsh before English, partially because my mother was a was a junior school teacher in Mardy, and she didn't want to teach her son or have a son in the same school. Partially, but by then there was a Welsh language junior school. It had only, only been set up a couple of years earlier in Pontygwaith, so I went to the Welsh language junior school, and then uh, I was. Uh, one of the first pupils in Rydvelyn, which is the first Welsh senior school. There was only 300 pupils there when I went there. Uh, so Welsh was really important. Chapel was really important. The community was really important. Mining
0: and mining traditions were really important, part of my uh, my background. And then, as your education went on, you went to the University of East Anglia in Norwich to study what was quite a minority interest at the time, didn't you? Well, I went to Norwich, partially to get as far away as
1: as possible. It still takes you nearly five hours to get there. And I rejected all this Welsh language stuff. When I went to Rydvellyn, it was almost compulsory. And and it's strange that um, sometimes the motivation, which makes you do one thing, uh, would make you do something entirely different in a different context. So if I'd have gone to an English school a generation before that was not allowing you to speak Welsh. Perhaps I would have ended up speaking Welsh a lot of the time. But because Revelin was telling me that I had to speak Welsh, I went the opposite way, didn't I then? I regret it now, but that was one of the most... Let's go far away from all this. I'm not going to Aberystwyth or all the rest of them. I'm going abroad. So I went to Norwich and I was keen on natural history and I was keen on science. And I was infused by these new ideas about ecology. And that became a passion. But the way ecology became politicised later on was a problem to me. But I retained the the, the interest. And uh, one of the first speeches I made in the House of Commons was quoting the Gaia hypothesis from Lovelock. I had joined Friends of the Earth in university, one of the first members, but I, my membership had lapsed. Jonathan Porritt came to Cardiff. There was a meeting of it was probably the AGM or something like that, of uh, Friends of the Earth in Cardiff 20-odd years later. That, later, And they were inviting Lovelock to speak because he was a great doyen. This is or, James Lovelock. James Lovelock, yeah, the great doyen. And I absolutely loved his speech because he told them off. He said, you, you're adhering far more to witchcraft than you are to science, which uh, I thought
0: was right. When you studied ecology then... It was a recently established discipline, I imagine, at yes. uh, the university. And what was the, the core message that was coming across from the course, would you say, in terms of the significance of the environment in society?
1: I, I started off doing biological science and I, uh, I uh, ended up just doing ecology. Ecology takes all the sciences together and, ge- and geography and, and geology uh, as well because ecosystems rely on everything. Everything has a role, everything has a part to play, Uh, everything has an influence. Mess it up at your peril. And there there were a number of prominent speakers, writers, at the time beginning to uh, warn that we were making huge errors. Oh, by the way, I had a physics teacher in in Rydvellyn, great 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 physics teacher gwen humphries sadly dead now but gwen taught us global warming when it wasn't on the curriculum at all and when i started teaching biology global warming wasn't on the curriculum and i taught my sixth
0: formers global warming before it was on the, on the curriculum so at that time you'd be considering terms like sustainability sustainable development that is a term which these days uh, is open to quite a lot of different interpretations. But at the time when you were studying it, I imagine that it was quite clearly defined. I had a clear idea of what it was. I don't have
1: an idea what it is any longer. Because ecology was, when it was a, a, a sort of minority interest, wasn't having much political effect, began to have political effect. Once it did have political effect, then politicians wanted to incorporate it, wanted to get support from those people who considered ecological issues to be important. And words began to lose their original meaning. And sustainability, um, once it begins to incorporate economic development, social issues, it then becomes a word which you can you should make it be- uh, say whatever you want it to say. And you have all these arguments between, you know, what is sustainable, what isn't sustainable. It's no longer a useful
0: phrase, in my uh, opinion. So at the outset, what was your understanding of what sustainability was? If something's sustainable, it's going to remain
1: more or less along with the same amount of it or population isn't going to change greatly over an extended period of time. You can use the word to some extent in a social context. You say a You could say that a house is sustainable if you build a housing project and you think those houses are going to be still there in 100 years from now. So in a sense, it's still using the word properly. But um, it's not using the word properly if you have arguments over the M4 uh, relief fraud and you start using the word sustainability there to mean all sorts of things. I'm not a purist. So I don't think that if something isn't sustainable, that means you can't do it. You just have to take it into account. So, you graduate. You then did a PGCE, I believe. I did. I did. My mother told me that I had to. Well, I, I didn't have any clear career path. I think if I'd had money behind me, I would have, uh, I would have started a fish farm, because that's what I wanted to do. But I didn't have money behind me, so I couldn't do that. So I just like lots of other people, fell into
0: teaching because that's what well, I couldn't think of anything else. Because um, there's that rather cruel quote from George Bernard Shaw, isn't there? Which uh, is, those, those who, who can, can do, do, those, those who, who can't, can't teach. teach. And those who can't teach, teach teachers. Yes. <laughs> yes, I certainly
1: found that to be true when I did my PGC in Cardiff University and we had lectures from a guy who believed in reincarnation and he gave he lectures about reincarnation. Good
0: Lord. So... Um, Yeah, I didn't get a lot lot of value from that. Yeah, yeah. But then you you, you were actually a teacher for quite a long time, weren't you? About, what, 15 years? 15 years, yeah. So how did you find that? Hard at first, because I thought you
1: just had to be reasonable and treat the kids as if they were adults. And that's not true. But after a few years, I got pretty good at that. And uh, I didn't have any trouble with classes after that. Did you have to be firm? I was very firm. But uh, I was very firm on small things and I didn't have to deal with big things. Teachings moved on. I'm not going to sit here and tell new teachers how to to teach. But it worked out for me in that sense and I enjoyed my teaching uh, after a while, yeah. And I think you got uh, quite strongly enrolled with the NUT. I did, yeah. I couldn't be in the NUM, so I was in the NUT. No, no, there were reasons. My mother was in the NUT, and my mother had told me stories about uh, how, when she started teaching, you couldn't be married as a teacher, uh, as a woman teacher, and uh, women teachers were not paid equally with men teachers, and... um, the NUT fought for equal pay for women teachers and a lot of men didn't approve of that and there was a split and the N-A-S-U-W-T or N-A-S it was called then the National Association of School Masters split off for that reason so my mother influenced me in joining the NUT and I became active in it I became president of Middle Morgan NUT when I was in my early 30s which was Quite a, a novelty for the NUT because generally the, the leaders tended to be primary school headmasters, male, and in their 50s. When did you get involved with the
0: Labour Party? I
1: formed, I formed the Labour Party group in, when I was in university uh, in Norwich. Oh, I tried to become a member in Mardi. Well, I found it impossible to get in. My family background, my grandfather on one side... Who I never met because he died when he was fifty six. He was an active communist party member, and Mardi politics is a bit, well, especially in those days, was rather different to. And the communist party was was strong. Everyone, everyone's lived a few deals down. Communist party. So when I tried to join the party, I don't know, my application got lost, whatever. So I never, I didn't join then. Was that guilt by association? I don't know. I don't know. I, mean, I think it was uh, a lot of. We don't need we don't need new members, they're they're going to be a problem. We get voted in anyway. And then we moved to Aberdeer uh, when I was 17, and I did get involved in the Labour Party in Aberdeer, but again, my full membership never came through. I got involved in Anti-Nazi League and Rock Against Racism. I organised a a concert in Aberdeer on Rock Against Racism. Uh, When I moved to Cardiff, uh, within a, a week or two, I met somebody who knew my involvement I was a Labour Party member within weeks, so it was rather different to my, uh, my, what had happened in the Valleys. Within a year I became Secretary of the, the Ward, Adamstone Ward, and within a, a two years I think I was Secretary of the Constituency. So I was Secretary of the Constituency and I was President of Midland Morgan NUT. So I was pretty political then.
0: When did you start having ambitions to be an MP? When I was 18 I
1: think. I remember t- telling my friend that um, I wanted to become an MP. And so how did that pan out? Although I, want, I remember I wanted to become an MP when I was 18, I wasn't doing anything in order to become an MP when I was 22 or, or something. It, 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 it wasn't something that then came to me. And I didn't think I would get selected to become an MP. Uh, I put my name forward uh, in nineteen eighty. Five to be selected in my constituency which was regarded as a it wouldn't have been regarded as a winnable seat and much to my surprise I, I did get selected. This is Cardiff Central? Yeah. Because it was Conservative held at the time? It was Conservative held at the time. It was a fairly bitterly contested selection because this was the time of uh, militant activity and I had made a, a a bit of a mark for myself as someone who was not tolerant of militant being in the Labour Party, um, which gained me support from one section and a great deal of opposition from another section. What was your concern about militants at that time then? I had known a lot of militant people. I I, I met them within the union and I met them locally. And I was friendly with them to, to, to some extent. But I knew that they were operating as a party within a party their denials of that were were ridiculous they were they were trotskyites and i didn't believe uh, and marxists go back in back to my university days i i probably considered myself a marxist uh, when i went to university i studied science and i studied the philosophy of science and i read karl popper and marxism Claimed that it was a scientific theory and this was nonsense. And then, as I got older, and more and more examples came about, uh, came about when I was a young man, there was the Soviet Union and that was it, and then there was Cuba. But by the 80s, and certainly by now, we should have uh, realized that. Every time anyone has tried to implement Marxist theory into running a complex country, it hasn't ended very well. has ended dreadfully. In science theory, Karl Popper pointed out that something that is scientific, a scientific fact, is falsifiable. If you say that something is true, if it's scientific, you should be able to test whether it is true. And if it fails the tests, then you think of another theory. Your theory is wrong. Well... How many times do we have to test the theory that if you run
0: a country on Marxist lines, then things work out well? So, therefore, you saw these people infiltrating the Labour Party as a, as a danger. I mean, you presumably thought that if these people took control of the Labour Party, it would make the Labour Party unelectable and we'd be stuck with the Conservative Party. Yes, and um, there are two things in that.
1: Yes, I believed that they that that they would make the party less electable. Remember, that we'd just gone through 1983, the longest suicide note in history, when we presented the the country with a, a pretty left wing manifesto, and we, we we'd had it rejected. So yes, at that time, I believed that they were a threat to our electability, but I also thought they were wrong. That you couldn't run society on on that basis. So even if
0: I had thought them electable. I would still have opposed them. So would you describe yourself essentially as a social democrat? Well, yes, I suppose that's what I am. I think that
1: the the market is the most powerful tool to distribute resources. And I can't imagine a complex society running without using the market. On the other hand, the market cannot run fairly unless it's regulated, and it has a potential of producing huge inequality, which has to be, again, regulated. So, I think that's what social democracy is. You acknowledge the market, but you regulate it. Marxism, and some people's support of socialism, actually rejects the market altogether.
0: And I think that is foolish and wrong. So you get elected as the MP in nineteen ninety two. Were you surprised to get elected? No, not in ninety two I wasn't. I I'd
1: come pretty close in eighty seven, a lot closer than most people thought. I was pretty confident of being elected in ninety-two. We we were fairly confident we were gonna win the election. And the Cinock in ninety two, it, it was a huge disappointment that we didn't win. Personal scale, I just won I just become an MP, so I wasn't terribly disappointed. But um
0: uh, a lot of people were. That's right, because uh, I think the opinion polls were suggesting that uh, Labour was going to win, and then there are various theories why Labour didn't win, um, including the Sheffield rally, for yeah. example. Well, hubris. D- mm. Hubris. Do you mm. think that that was the real cause of the defeat? I don't know. There was a degree of racism, I, I, I think, uh, about the defeat.
1: that uh, Kinnock was, uh, had an accent which was not dissimilar to mine, and hair at the time that was not dissimilar to mine. I, I think quite a, a, a lot of people couldn't see somebody being the Prime Minister
0: talking like Kinnock did. Um, partially that. And then, of course, he resigned after the defeat and John Smith was elected as the Leader of the Labour Party. What did you make of him? I still have a picture of me with John Smith
1: in my house. John Smith was... Uh, it's really sad that uh, John Smith had, uh, had died. He was a terrific uh, party leader. John Smith promoted me. I was the first, first of the 92 intake to be brought onto the front bench as a, as a whip. But the way it happened, it was really odd. Maastricht. The last time we had, we had anything remotely like today in terms of parliamentary gridlock was implementing the Maastricht Treaty under uh, uh, John Major and there were party divisions all over the place. We got pretty close to defeating the government. The Labour Party position was we weren't supporting the government on Maastricht. I wrote an irate letter to the Labour leader, John Smith, saying that we should support the government because Maastricht was, was something we should, we should support, and I was personally disappointed in him, This what cheek I had, in that he'd always been a pro-European, And it was wrong of him now to equivocate. Within about a month, I'd been made whip. (laughs) And looking back, I think that John Smith hadn't changed his view about Europe. But he understood the way Parliament works. Parliament needs an opposition to oppose, to test the government. And that's what we did at that period. I think there are lessons to be learned. Had the Tory party taken the same view of the Iraq war, we wouldn't have gone into Iraq. And too often in the Welsh Assembly there is insufficient opposition because the sort of consensus politics that, that has
0: developed much of the time over the last 20 years doesn't allow you to test ideas properly. What do you think would have happened if... John Smith had survived and then become Prime Minister in ninety-seven. How would things have been different?
1: Well, we'd have still won. I don't think we'd have won as, as well. I don't think we'd have had the, the huge, huge majority that, that Blair... Blair was, very, was a very popular, skilful politician. And although John Smith was popular, he, di- he didn't reach that far into the electorate that uh, Tony Blair did. I don't think there would have been that much difference in the first term... And I don't know. I know people say that that uh, some of the modernisation that Blair uh, enacted or some of the challenge to to uh, unionism that Blair enacted would not have ha- uh, happened under John Smith. That might be true to some extent. I don't know.
0: Do you think he would have gone into Iraq? No, he would certainly wouldn't have gone into Iraq, no. He would certainly not. So that has been a very... A significant turning point in British politics, hasn't it? Yes. So, if if we hadn't got into Iraq, who's to say whether Labour's popularity would not have continued longer than it did? Tony Blair, the Prime Minister, would have won four uh, general
1: elections. He wasn't going anywhere. Um, I, I know Gordon Brown wants him out, but uh, he he would have retained his popularity. I remember arguing in front of the Parliamentary Labour Party with. Prime Minister saying that he couldn't go into Iraq in a war without the support of his party, without the support of the public, without the support of the church and that his radicalism on the economic and social policy was endangered by this foreign escapade, which I think is true. I think the uh, a lot of the criticism that has been heaped upon New Labour's policies in uh, in terms of economic area is really about Iraq, which has got nothing to do with it.
0: And then as things moved on, the Labour Party became committed to devolution. You were appointed, weren't you, as the minister in ninety seven. Ninety eight. Ninety eight. Right. was the whip in ninety seven <clears throat> I took the bill through.
1: And 10 years earlier, in 87, I'd formed the campaign for a Welsh Assembly. Yes. So my my commitment to devolution was well known long before. What were your hopes for devolution? We started off with talking about my background. I'm, I'm quintessentially archetypally Valley Welsh, and that seeking the greatest possible degree of control over... Uh, what happens in Wales by people in Wales was what I wanted to do. And I thought that that would also mean that policies in Wales would be better suited to our needs and would protect us from the terrible destruction of our our most important industry, the mining industry, by the Thatcher government. That's what I wanted, and um, it's almost from the, my mother's milk took that in. And you're working very closely with... Ron Davies. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, Ron has been described as the architect of devolution. He was. We wouldn't. We we only got it through narrowly anyway. So quite a lot of people could say without that person, uh, devolution wouldn't have happened. But it's it's certainly true about Ron Davies. And um, you know, we had our struggles within the party, you know, fierce struggles within the party, to get devolution uh, accepted. Uh, the prime minister wasn't terribly keen either. So it, was, it wasn't an easy task. So you, you had opposition on both sides. You had a lot of people in, in, in Wales who saw devolution as a threat to the Labour Party's hegemony in, in Wales. And you had opposition from the Prime Minister and some of his ministers who thought this was
0: an irrelevance or it was a threat to
1: the British state.
0: And of course, initially, Ron Davis was on course to become the first leader of the Assembly. Yeah. And we know what happened kept common uh, incident derailed that. How do you think devolution would have been different from the outset if Ron Davis had been the first secretary, as the title was at the time? Welsh devolution started off terribly badly.
1: We lost, I think, it was three party leaders within... Was it a year? The first minister we lost as well. Had Ron come in to the Welsh Assembly... We wouldn't have gone through that period of this terrible division between Rodri and Alan Michael. We would have had a majority at the outset. In that case, Ron had a very good relationship with David Wigley, the leader of Plaid Cymru. He also had a good relationship with the Liberal Democrats. I don't know what would have happened then. I really don't. Ron was, was careful in the way he brought people on, but what way he would have gone had he... Had he worked without the restrictions he was in, if he'd been the, the supreme leader in, in a Welsh context, I don't know. He told me that uh, in, in Wales we could really start to address our service industries, our, um, our services in, in, in the modernising way, which I approved of. Fairly sure he probably told some other people quite the opposite of that. So what he would have done in the end, I don't know. We, were, we talked about the loss of John Smith,
0: the loss of Ron to Welsh devolution was at least as great. As you say, at the outset of the Tony Blair Labour government, you were appointed a whip, and then uh, you became uh, a Welsh office minister in 1998 in the run-up to the establishment of the Welsh Assembly. Remind us of what your responsibilities were as a minister. Well, there were only three... Uh, ministers and the the first minister had overall
1: control, but he didn't have a specific functions. So, actually, so in, in effect, there were only two: me and Peter Hayne, And all the functions of the Welsh Office uh, were delegated to either me or, or or Peter Hain. So, I had I had local government, health, agriculture, social services. Probably forgetting
0: something, but that's quite a lot. And what? Did you find out about the state of public services in Wales uh, during your period as a minister?
1: Well, I don't know whether they were vastly different to the state of public services in England or Scotland, but I thought they were um, that many services had to modernise. There's a general problem with public service as opposed to private services. I'm in favour of public services, but even today, if you, you will find... That I saw the statistic that I can't remember, the, the, but the number of fax machines that the National Health Service has, more than anywhere in the world, apparently. Even tell, now. Yeah, even now. That, that tells you something, doesn't it? Like, why have all the other organisations done away with fax machines, and the Health Service still has fax machines? That it's more difficult to get change within public services than it is in private services. Because private services have to change. To meet competition from other private services. So they're looking 10 years ahead regularly. In public service, change is a problem for you. Pushing change through is difficult, particularly in things like the health service. And the rewards for pushing it through, if you're the sort of middle manager or whatever who, who's done this, are scant. Um, the pain is real and the problems, but the rewards are scant. So you need to have push from on top and support from on top to change public services. In the the, the health service that I inherited, it had lots of hospitals uh, which had been built 80 years, 90 years, 100 years earlier in various places which didn't meet, meet the needs of modern health service. They were in the wrong place or they were old, old buildings or, or whatever. But... It was easy for local politicians to generate a lot of public support if they opposed you changing it. I took the view that it was my responsibility to push change in various public services, uh,
0: local authorities as well, which produced a lot of um, opposition. I suppose the thing is, uh, John, that um, you were there as a minister at the fag end of pre-devolution... If you'd wanted to carry on in any kind of ministerial role, you'd have had to stand for the Assembly. But I suppose there were some impediments there, weren't there? Why, why didn't you stand for the Assembly? Because I didn't think I could win my seat.
1: The, the whole business of um, uh, the walk on and clap and common got all tied in it. So the party was hugely divided Ron, um, of uh, after the Ron Davis. It was between Rodri and Alan Michael. They were both Cardiff MPs. Cardiff West stood loyally with Rodri, Cardiff South stood loyally with Alan Michael, Cardiff Central was in the centre and it was torn. And I didn't think that I could win Cardiff Central if I stood in the Assembly election. I'm pretty sure I was right. That's why I didn't. And I also didn't think it was right to jump to a different constituency.
0: And of course, as things turned out, uh, the Liberal Democrats won the seat in nineteen ninety nine at the assembly mm. level, they ran you in the parliamentary election in two thousand and one quite close. Well, in,
1: prior to that, at the local government elections, which were held was it 1999? Ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, the local government elections were held right in the middle of all that Rodri and Allen row. We lost. I think we lost all but two. We only had two councillors uh,
0: in the in the constituency. Labour councillors left, mm. so things weren't looking good. Mm. And then devolution takes place, and what did you see your role as then? Because you were obviously still the MP for a further six years. What, what, what was your motivating force at that stage? Having been a minister, it's difficult, isn't it, to, when you've had such power to step down and not have executive authority again? I didn't step down. I was pushed off. I could have been moved to a different department as a minister,
1: but I had opposed uh, Alan Michael's appointment or push from the Prime Minister. So the Prime Minister didn't appreciate my constructive criticism. <laughs> they rarely do, Prime Ministers. So I was out. In the, those first nearly 10 years of devolution, uh, there weren't primary legislative powers in the Assembly. So it was quite proper to scrutinise the primary powers that the Assembly wanted in Parliament, because nowhere else, it was not going to happen anywhere else. So, for example, when the Health Minister in the Assembly, uh, in the second year, I think, of the Assembly, requested primary uh, legislation to... Increase the number of health authorities from, I think, 7 to 22. This was, Jane this was Jane Hutt. This couldn't happen. Scrutiny couldn't happen in the Assembly. It could only happen in Parliament. So I questioned the logic of that in Parliament. But my parliamentary Labour colleagues were whipped to deliver what the Assembly wanted and not intervene. Uh, So we didn't really get a scrutiny in Parliament either. But we had some scrutiny in Parliament, but uh, we didn't have any in in the Assembly. And, of course, eight years years later, the Assembly reversed that decision. And in order to buy off the people who were affected, it promised everyone who had got an appointment for the 22 health authorities that their salaries would be protected for a decade, which means we've only just ended the effect
0: of that daft administrative decision. What is your general perspective on how the Assembly stroke Welsh Government has operated uh, since devolution? Well, I I
1: expected you to ask me that question, and it's a curatech, isn't it? it, On the one hand, the Welsh Assembly hasn't imploded, which is in itself an achievement more importantly i think the welsh assembly has become an icon of welshness there are not many people who now oppose it It um, gives us a stronger feeling of what being welsh is so that is a big that is a big achievement in terms of policy i see few achievements some but in the big policy areas The difficulty has been, when the Assembly was set up, most of us anticipated, I think virtually everyone anticipated, that interest in Welsh politics would increase. There'd be more people buying the Western Mail. There'd be more coverage on TV. The media people put investment into that happening. Actually, the opposite has happened. I'm not saying that's the, that's the Assembly's fault, uh, it, it, but it, it, it has happened. Wales's capacity to argue and develop policy was limited beforehand. It's been very, very limited. On top of that, at least outside the Tory party and outside UKIP, but UKIP are a recent phenomenon, within the Assembly there has been a great deal of cohesion around consensual views that's a huge mistake it it doesn't test ideas there's only 60 of them that's part of the reason the degree of party control is much greater than it is in Westminster partially because they're smaller but also the way that you can put people on committees and take them off when they cause you a problem that can't happen in Westminster so the the degree of scrutiny is is really poor within the establishment and outside as well Added to that, at least in the first decade, most policy decisions were really about not doing what England was doing. And if the government, the Labour government in in the Assembly, was proposing not to do something that England was doing, what England was doing was perceived as being modernising, becoming less socialist. Would be argued it was less socialist. I'd argue that wasn't the case, but nevertheless, they had the complete support of Plaid Cymru in doing that. Plaid Cymru would never argue that not doing something that England was doing was, was a good idea, not a good idea. They'd always argue that. So it was easy uh, for the government to just not enact various things that England were doing. And sometimes they were right, but often they were wrong.
0: One thing I remember you raising uh, was the issue of the lack of support for PFIs, our finance initiatives. Do you think that they should have used those more in Wales? You raise an interesting point.
1: PFIs are not the best way of funding uh, something, but often they're the only uh, way of funding something. And the argument I made, and I backed that argument up with an awful lot of statistics, which no, I can no longer remember, was that by not Doing PFI schemes, for example, building hospitals and things like that, we were denying Wales a huge lot of development that was happening in every other region of England and Scotland. And that, that in itself had an effect on our economy. You could argue, well, you have to pay for it later on down the line, but it's certainly true. And... The biggest scheme that's currently being discussed by the Welsh Assembly is the M4 uh, relief fraud. And the biggest problem in the M4 relief fraud is it requires you to spend such a a large amount of your capital on one scheme. PFI would allow you to do some of those things and
0: other things as well. Get to 2005 and you got defeated in Cardiff Central by the Liberal Democrats who constantly you... argued that I had supported the war in Iraq. Is that the case? Yeah. Yes. Which was totally untrue. Absolutely untrue, yes, of course. You were then in a difficult position because you, you hadn't gone to the Assembly, there didn't seem to be an immediate way or didn't seem to be a way of getting there. So essentially your political career was cut short in 2005. How, how did you see the way forward at that stage? Well, you say I couldn't get into
1: the Assembly. Um, I came close to being selected in 2007 for the Wales and West seat. I got knocked out. Mid mid and West? Mid and West seat, yeah. yeah. I got knocked out by seven votes in the transferable vote system. So I I wasn't entirely cut off then, but it didn't quite go to plan. And and part of the reason why I wasn't selected was some of the things I'd said earlier that that I don't... There were quite a few people in the Welsh Assembly group who wouldn't have been comfortable
0: with me joining them. Yes. You then became, eventually, the chair of the Forestry Commission in Wales. Yes. And you became embroiled, or the organisation became embroiled, in something of a row because the Welsh Government wanted to merge the Forestry Commission with two other bodies to form Natural Resources Wales. And I remember doing quite a few stories at the time, talking to you and talking to others, people who were saying that this was not a good idea from the forestry perspective and that things would go, um, likely to go terribly wrong. And only the other day I found myself, not for the first time, writing a story about how things had gone terribly wrong in terms of the management of the forestry sector. Mm -hmm. You could be the first in line, I suppose, John, to say, I told you so. How do you feel about the way things have panned out so far as the forestry element is concerned? And, I mean, do you think that the warnings that you and others were making before the merger took place have been proved to be justified? Well, yes, I do. In
1: looking back at how how that policy emerged, I think there are I think there's some unique features about the NRW merger, but problems, uh, but there are also some symptomatic ones. The unique feature of NRW was that there were two motivating strands which were mutually incompatible within the assembly. On the one hand, there were people in government rather than the assembly who uh, found the way in which the Countryside Council for Wales operated a problem. It was constantly opposing big developments, and there were a number of other big developments on the horizon. The Countryside Council for Wales would have been a big problem in Wilver being one of them, for example. Um, that turned out well. Yeah, but I mean that's not what people knew at the time, was it? Anyway, so there was a motivation of how, what do we do with Countryside Council for Wales. But the other motivation was, if we do something to Countryside Council for Wales, how do we keep appearing to be very environmentally friendly? Incorporating Countryside Council for Wales with the Environment Agency solved one problem, but there would have been outcry from the people involved in Countryside Council for Wales against that merger. So they were then promised, as a reward for going along with this, you will get this vast territory, which the Forestry Commission uh, owned, where you will more or less be able to dictate um, how we run this territory. So, for the, for the Forestry Commission was a sort of prize, but th- those are the unique features. The, the symptomatic ones, of the way Welsh is often o- operated, was, how did this policy emerge? There was virtually no discussion outside of Assembly, or even in the Assembly, in any public forum, of uh, of this. In the lead-up to the Assembly election, you, you have a need, if you're a, in, in a party, you have a need to have policies on your manifesto. And a discussion around half a dozen or so people, not much more in the Assembly, wouldn't it be a good idea? And England doesn't do this, by the way. That's another big factor. We will merge these things uh, and have a Welsh... Organization, which is answerable only to us, you no, know, we, we have to deal with England at all. So it's a tiny group of people. They they come up with this idea, and you've got consensus in the non-Tory the, amongst the non-Tory parties. This is a good idea. And of course, they haven't looked at it in any detail, and they haven't spoken to anybody. Well, they certainly didn't speak to anybody in the forestry uh, about how good an idea that might be. So it goes on the manifestos. Now I was able to f- talk to. Carawain, after the manifesto, or when the manifesto was about to be written, and say, well, if you're going to proceed with this, Carwin, please do it on the basis of there being a business case to justify it. And he said, OK. So we had a business case. The civil service understood the purpose of the business case was to justify the policy rather than the policy needed to be justified by the business case. So the business case was dreadful. And then you have scrutiny, and the environmental committee that scrutinised, on one in one session, did a dreadful job of looking at. Did, uh, quite extraordinary. Of course, the chair of that environment committee later on became an independent minister in the gov- in the government that they were scrutinising. This is Dennis Thomas. Dennis Thomas. Outside of the assembly, so many bodies are effectively publicly funded by the Assembly. If you're in an awful lot of sectors, environmental sectors particularly, you depend on the grant that's going to come to you via the Welsh Assembly. If you've got a senior job in one of these things and you want some more senior jobs, you know you're going to be appointed by somebody who's connected to the Welsh Assembly. So unless you're a big business, and some of the businesses in, the, in forestry did talk, uh, speak out, but unless you've got that independent, and the RSPB, they they are fairly independent as well. But most most of the organisations that had any knowledge about this, were dependent on funding for, of the assembly, and they they feared to speak out. So that's symptomatic because that's, that we can point to other things where the same same processes occurred.
0: What's the answer to that then?
1: Well. Hmm. The, the Assembly has got, or the Assembly Government has an interest in ensuring it, it has control over external bodies as much as possible. And in, in effect, creating NRW was also about that, because uh, although uh, the Forestry Commission was dependent on the Assembly support, it, it had a degree of independence, And the Environment uh, Agency also had a degree of independence, and the Countryside Council of Wales also had a degree of independence. Merging them gave
0: the uh, the Assembly greater control over what they were going to do. So what you're saying is that in the future there should be some kind of decoupling? I don't know
1: how you would do it. Um, About uh, six years ago, I went to Ireland to Dublin, to watch the Ospreys thrash Leinster. I took my two sons with me. And the the taxi driver that picked us up told us the story of the last Taoiseach uh, having a bet on a horse he couldn't remember the name of in a betting shop he couldn't remember where it was. But that explained why there was a large sum of money in an account that had been discovered. And the Taoiseach before also had similar issues. Now... I've done some other work later on about the false labelling of uh, horse meat and that involved Ireland. There's a lot of corruption in politics in Ireland. Uh, there's corruption in, in politics everywhere, but, it's a, but Britain is relatively clean of corruption. And the major reason for that is fierce scrutiny in Parliament and fierce scrutiny by a diverse press. We don't have either of those things terribly evident in Wales. So that's a danger. Well, that is a big danger, yes. And uh, as time goes on, I've not heard of any financial corruption. I'm not accusing any you know, financial corruption. But there's not a lot of scrutiny to ensure that these things don't occur.
0: Thanks very much, John. Owen and Jones. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton meets. We'll be back for more next week.